Today, we are chatting about a great program for aged out foster youth. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Nicole, and joining us today is Erin Neesmith from Grow Into You Foundation. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for having me. Hi, Erin. We're so glad to have you here today. We have a very important question for you. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? Oh, I am actually not a coffee person. I'm a tea person. So my go-to is uh, green sweet iced tea. I like that. Actually, that is one of my go-to orders. I love the ice green tea. I have actually kind of modified it lately. Instead of um, doing sweet, I do unsweet, but I have them add the sugar-free vanilla, which is an oh. interesting addition. It adds like a sweetness that isn't too sweet. I know, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, I do that with the ice black tea and the ice green tea as I get the sugar-free vanilla added to it. I don't get the green tea. I get a black tea but I'm gonna try that with the vanilla that's a great idea yeah. do you ever drink chai no I I'm very much a creature of habit so <laughs> I just stick with what I know because that's the way I am with food is very much a creature of habit not in anything else in my life though. <laughs> so let me ask you Erin how did you find yourself in the world of foster care? Did you know about foster care growing up in some way? No, actually growing up, I had kind of a traditional uh, growing up, but I always had this part of me that I felt drawn to at the time, I would say orphans. I remember being super young, like maybe eight years old and watching like 60 minutes, which I probably shouldn't have been watching. <laughs> I remember seeing this orphanage in Romania. I remember that. It was these little kids who were like, they had a lot of deformities and it was just, it was absolutely like devastating to me as a little kid. Now I realize as an adult that all movies for children are about orphans. But <laughs> right? <laughs> Especially the Disney, like yes. you can't start a Disney yes. movie without a parent dying in the very right. beginning. Exactly. And think about how triggering that is for all of our right. kids. It's a lot of my kids don't watch a lot of Disney movies uh, or we skip the first five minutes. Like they didn't know that Nemo's mom died because like we just, just always skip independence. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, I just think that God was always drawing my heart towards it. What I grew up with was a divorced family, and both of my parents were very involved in my life. I had 
you know, everything you could want as a kid. I was provided for, love. But there was a lot of turmoil because of that divorce. I had a lot of stuff to get over. Doing that work for myself and becoming like a healthy version of myself, I realized as I got older and I worked with kids, I've always worked with kids, but I gravitated towards those at-risk kids or the underdogs. What I came to realize is I had a lot of stuff to get over and I came from a loving, supportive home. Yeah. How right. much more? Isn't that a crazy realization to yeah, have? Yeah. I had that then, same realization. <laughs> like gonna, life is hard without yeah. any trauma at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I just had this epiphany maybe of if you come from a, a home where you were not cared for, maybe because they couldn't or they wouldn't, you know, how much more do you have to get over and how more steep and treacherous climb is it to get out of that place of self-loathing or insecurity or impulsiveness. So that's the connection I have is just that I know my own journey and I know how hard I've had to work and I want to be able to empower other people who are coming from places where they weren't given the privilege that I was to be able to do the same thing. I started out as a juvenile justice reentry counselor and I worked with kids who had been in programs that they had been uh, sentenced to through the court system. And I did that for about nine months working with these kids who came out of their programs and I would see them kind of like a probation officer. I was kind of the go-between between between the kid and the probation officer. But I would see them for like five minutes and then they would go commit a crime after I (laughs) met with them. And I felt like... Well, that's disheartening. Yeah, it was. It really was. It was like the epitome of social work of, you know, underpaid, overworked. I had like a third of Hillsborough County and it was all I could do just to get from one to the other to the other. And it didn't feel quality. So I decided I could help those same kids if I just went into a classroom. And so I became a teacher, which I never thought I would. My mom was a teacher and I like to be, you know, very unique. I'm an Enneagram four, so (laughs) I just want to be special. I didn't think that I wanted to go the route that my parent went and I ended up in a classroom with lowest quartile kids working with, you know, a lot of at-risk kids from a lot of different backgrounds and did that for about six years. Then an opportunity came for me to go to a kid's place in Brandon, which is a group home in a kid's place. It was like a one-room schoolhouse. I had kids from kindergarten through fifth grade that stayed on campus with me. I was a Hillsborough County public school teacher, but they had a special contract to have an on-campus teacher at this group home. So you would go there during the day and be their teacher. Yes. But they lived in that location 24 seven. Yeah. And they were in foster care, mm-hmm. out of home care. So it was a licensed group home. I liked how they did it. They have like a this little cul-de-sac of houses and it was familial living. They had house parents and they had like 12 kids per house. I think there were five houses and it was zero to 18. So obviously I was working with those elementary school kids and I would have any number of kids on any given day if they had come overnight and they put them in school the next day, they would just send them to me until they got enrolled into regular school to keep some kind of like normalcy in their life. If kids were too traumatized to go to regular school, they would stay with me. If kids were not going to be there for very long because they were just waiting for, you know, a family member to, to come to get them or something, they would stay with me. So it was an in and out classroom. But some of those kids I taught for two whole years because they were just in a position where they were so neglected academically 
academically or they were so traumatized from what had happened that they couldn't go into a traditional classroom. So it was a really, really special two That's years. an awesome approach. You know, a lot of times when kids are in care, they lack education because they're bouncing or they're in a group home yeah. where those supports aren't in place. So to have a teacher there on campus is huge. You know, some of the other group homes I know have private tutors and they come in and work with kids, which is helpful, but it's not the same as having a teacher teaching the curriculum, especially for kids, even like you said, if it's long term and they're just too traumatized or too academically behind. I had a couple of kids who, two in particular, who were about eight years old when they came to me and had never been formally schooled because of the neglect that they had suffered. Did not know how to spell their own name at eight years old. Putting that kid over in a second grade classroom would be such a detriment. Being with me. More trauma. Right. We were able (laughs) to, I was able to meet them where they're at, you know, try to give them all those things that they had already missed. It was a very unique experience to me in that situation. There needs to be a different solution for kids in care for school. And that sounds like a great solution for the kids that were in that group home. My kids that I would say are over sixth or seventh grade. I don't think I've had any of them that were able to like be successful, at least initially in the classroom, because either they're having panic attacks and they can't go to school. So I had one teen who every day they would call me to the school because she either had a panic attack or she threatened to hurt herself. The only way I was able to help her be successful is by switching her to virtual school and sitting next to her on the couch every single day and going through her work with her. That was the only way she was able to get anything other than an F. I think we were joking, Nicole, I think it was you I was joking with because I've got a kid who actually does pretty well in the classroom despite his situation. (laughs) The teacher had reached out to me because this kid was mumbling under his breath when she asked him to be quicker about getting his books out. When I asked him about it, he's like, I know I was being really rude, but she kept telling me to do like all these things at once and I was still trying to do the last thing she asked me to do and it was frustrating so yes I mumbled under my breath but it's like you're worried about a kid mumbling under his breath I'm glad he's not in the corner crying throwing chairs and beating someone up I'm glad he's not doing drugs in the bathroom you're worried about him mumbling (laughs) under his breath in our group chat with foster parents last night there was a conversation about homework and how some of us don't have our kids do homework some of us give abbreviated homework you know there's a variance there amongst us foster parents my take on it is the these kids have so much going on in their life. They are struggling to survive, yeah. like getting through the day without completely sabotaging their life, their placement, their everything takes everything out of them. So to worry after they've spent the entire day at school for to make yeah. them sit down and right. then argue with you while you're trying to build a connection with them about some stupid math, some problem, math problem that I is can't. not going to yeah. matter in the long run. We're so we're so on the same page. <laughs> yeah. I was a teacher who did not give homework yeah. for this reason. Yeah. Because, and and as a teacher in the teacher position, I went, I can't control what happens at home. And I know that yeah. they have so many, you know, a vast variety of issues going on at home. I'm not going to hold a kid accountable for what I wasn't able to be there to make sure that they were able to accomplish. Right. So yeah, I didn't do that. That same idea of like, I could I could definitely go on a soapbox about what people who are not trauma informed right. think is unacceptable. It's, it makes me laugh. It's a yeah. huge difference. You know, you know I Christ. just... I had a conversation yesterday with some teachers. I was incredibly blunt. And I was like, let's all remember what has occurred here. And if you don't remember, let me bluntly tell you 
what this child has experienced. So this is what we're not going to do. And I really don't care what you guys want. And to that point with homework, I make my kids read. It's kind of it. My kids, when they get home, they're decompressing from a very triggering and stressful situation all day. Every single kid in my house has had trauma. Every single kid in my house has had abandonment. Every single kid in my house are living with other kids who are bringing in trauma every day. So the last thing I'm going to do when they come home and they breathe that big sigh of relief of, okay, like I can relax now is be like, here, I need you to do schoolwork. (laughs) Like, you know, I might have them like help unload the dishwasher, but like for the most part, we're decompressing. We're spending time together. We're having fun together, hopefully. It was so stressful when they were doing homework. You know, when the bell schedule changed at school this year, my kids were affected by it. So they don't start school until 10 o'clock. So I was like, when you guys get home, like, just have fun. Go on the trampoline, do whatever. So now they have to read in the morning before they go to school. Yeah. So it took that pressure off yeah. in, in the evenings. In that situation with the little one-room schoolhouse, this is the catalyst to how I moved from that position. Because when I got there, I really thought, this is it. I can... I can get my tenure and I can, you know, have my retirement. And, and you're the, making an impact. Right. And be the teacher in in the group home with foster kids. Like this is what I've been waiting for is an opportunity to impact foster care in a way that works for me. And this works for me um, because at the time I did not I had the heart for it. My husband and I were not necessarily on the same page about it becoming something we did in our home. You know, I thought I'd be there forever. In two years, I was like, I felt like God was telling me to leave. And I thought that was really dumb. One of the catalysts for me leaving was that I was sitting in this room with kids. Like I had a conversation with this eight-year-old boy who I was teaching to read for the first time. And it was the end of the school year. We were talking about summer. And so what comes up? The beach, because you talk about the beach when you're talking about summer. I said, okay, guys, what is it that you use, you know, to move the sand? He didn't know what a shovel was because he had, that's how neglected he was. But I was supposed to give them standardized tests, you know, that everybody else. (laughs) He's supposed to meet the standards of all these other kids who have had normal basic. I had teacher evaluations when a kid had just come up from a trauma situation. It was brand new in my classroom day one. But you're going to evaluate me the same way on rapport with the students as you do. So I, I had a girl who this is the one who couldn't spell her own name. Really, really sweet little girl. She was sitting with me and I had to give her what's called the fair test, which is a reading test. It's two paragraphs. She's supposed to be in second grade here. Read these paragraphs. But I can't read. I know, but I have to make you do it anyway. That was not okay with me. So I became, I started to become a little jaded as a teacher. (laughs) And I decided like, look, I need to impact these kids, but I need to impact them outside of this system in a different way. And so that started this long journey through corporate America and getting like management skills that God knew I needed and whatever. And then I end up in a coaching organization and learning life coaching skills and getting a certification in that so that I can then use that with teens in foster care. Because at that group home, zero to 18, I was working with elementary, but I saw how there was not a lot for the older kids. They were kind of just languishing. There was mm-hmm. not a whole lot offered to them. And then I started to hear about this aging out idea and what, you know, I didn't really hear much about what there was for them as they are like 
basically <laughs> packing up their stuff. And on your 18th birthday, your gift is that you have to leave this place that you have been in, mm-hmm. uh, which is usually a group home. So basically you've grown up in what might be like a, a locker room situation. And even that feels better than I don't know where I'm going. As I started to learn the plight of those those teens, when I got out of my life coaching certification and all these people, they're using it to go coach executives and to (laughs) To make the big money. Right. I mean, the amount of of money that they charge for a package for life coaching. And here I was going, I have to use my education background, my at-risk kids background to scaffold this, this information that's very empowering for people who are already very successful and motivated. And I need to bring that down to the to this level for trauma kids, the for kids who are forgotten, kids that are cast aside, what I call the black hole of society, where where these kids are just in this abyss and nobody is really paying attention. And the ones who are are still part of a system. That is not serving them in a very organic, uh, relational way. So that's what I started to set out to do. When I initially started in that coaching program, they have you do this visioning exercise. They say, "Okay, just imagine you just got done with a coaching session. Like, who is your clientele? You know, what demographics do they fit? What have you just done in that coaching session? What what is their action that they're leaving to forward the action? And so I'm sitting there and in my head, it is a young black man who is just walking out of his coaching session with a huge smile on his face because he just applied for college. What I did to start working towards uh, growing to you is I started to pilot coaching and mentoring in group homes because to be clear, coaching in and of itself is something that when you come from a lot of trauma or you have mental health issues, it's not always something you can readily access the coaching skills. So there is a hybrid of what I do. A lot of it is mentoring. Obviously, they're very young, very impressionable and still trying to overcome a lot. So what I do is not purely coaching. It is definitely coaching and mentoring hybrid. In the group homes, I went in initially just offering my services as a volunteer. I will come in. I will sit with any kid in the group home that wants to for, you know, maybe 20 minutes each. If they want to, they can. If they don't, don't want to, that's okay. It being their choice was super important because we all know that their choices are taken away. Up front, that was a very clear line in the sand for me. This needs to be voluntary, never mandatory. They, Which is great because they're forced to get therapy all right. the time and yeah. sit down with people and therapists all the time. Yeah, it was voluntary. And what would happen is maybe this kid would meet with me, but that kid wouldn't. But when that kid saw me coming back every single week, then one day they go, well, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I had two group homes in particular, one girls and one boys. And I would go every week and meet with them. And just it was building rapport. It was building relationship. Um, and that's where we started sometimes for a long time. Meanwhile, I had one teen that was sent to me who was sent through Heart Gallery. And I have a great relationship with them. They said, look, you know, this kid, he's 17, never been in foster care before, was pulled out during his senior year. From his home, from with his, his family. Home. Yeah. Wow. A lot of emotional neglect. It was due to something happening to a family member within the home. And so he was basically stunned. Like he didn't know what to think about this situation. He was placed with other family members he wasn't close to. And they basically just gave him a room to stay in. And I would meet with him week after week and he would pretty much just stare at me. He <laughs> did not 
speak hardly at all, probably for like two whole months. And I just kept going back and we just kept listening to me staring at each other. (laughs) (laughs) And so one day he tells me about his, I don't know what to call it. I watch Apple Watch. Watch. (laughs) He's telling me about the moon on his watch and how you can move it and whatever. And I was thinking, he's talking. I don't know what changed. And then from there, we just, you know, we went on this wonderful journey of him uh, having an ROTC ceremony and I went to see it. And then he was graduating and he actually had really good grades. And so we were able to fill out his application for him to go to HCC. And when he was walking out my door and I'm thinking that's your thing, that vision has just (laughs) happened. And that was about a year from from when that that's awesome occurred in these group homes same thing you're seeing kids who are like who are you are you even going to show up again the girls will laugh because when i came to their group home they were pretty streetwise and you know they were like who is this lady we don't don't need you um but many of those girls this is six years ago 2016 um are still my my teens now Uh, i met them at 14 15 16 and now i've got them in their you know early 20s and they're kids that i've had this relationship with all along and i've turned from you know mentor to coach to mom, to to whatever, whatever role they need me to play in their life. After doing that pilot in those group homes, as those kids started to age out, then I was just following them, which is the design that I ultimately, if I had, I could tell you lots of things I would do if I had a lot of money. (laughs) One of them would be to have to multiply myself and have a lot of coaches. I would love every kid at 17 years old to have a coach that's going to follow them, whether they're adopted or they age out so that they will have somebody that's completely neutral in their corner. Uh, What I like to tell them is I'm not, I have no agenda for you. I'm not your parent. I'm not your teacher. I'm not law enforcement. I'm not your case manager. You don't have to do anything for me. So I can be objective in helping you figure out what is healthy and safe for you so that you can move forward in that. And then so they don't feel like they have to tell you what you want to hear. Right. Because they need to make you happy because you're either deciding something for them or taking care of them. That's And they don't feel like you're taking advantage or gaining something from them, right. which a lot of these teens feel like people want things from them or you're gaining things from them. When you're in that neutral space, there's really no way for them to think that. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, I met these three boys in the boys group home and they were 12, 15 and 16. And these boys were, you could tell that there were, there were a lot of very special things going on in their lives. Like they had so much potential. We all know that there's a lot of kids who their trauma comes out in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, certainly the kids who have the most significant trauma and, and mental health needs, like I'm there for them too. But these boys, you could just tell that despite the you know, trauma they had been through, there was this awareness that they had a huge desire to go somewhere. As I developed a relationship with them and supported them through that group home and through their high school years, my desire was uh, like, God just told me like, I wanted to have house for them when they age out, like, where are they going to go? So my dad worked uh, for many years in this little house in Brandon, 
uh, it was his office and he retired to the East Coast. And I said, please just let me take your office and renovate it and I'll pay rent. And then we'll make it into a house for boys who have aged out of foster care. Today, all three of those boys that I met in that group home live in that house as roommates and are doing the things that they need to do towards their independence. You know, for me to meet this kid who's 16 years old, had just gotten unadopted. He had just gotten unadopted? Unadopted. So Um, adopted and then put back into foster care. Yes. I remember the first time he made a vision board with me. One of the statements he put on it is, I want to be innocent because he had been made to feel his whole life like he was the bad thing in his life. We just went and spoke last week at a leadership conference for the Chamber of Commerce in Brandon. And he stood up in front of these people and said, what I learned when I met Miss Aaron is that I'm not bad. Now he is starting a company with one of the other boys to do sports training and mentoring for teens. Oh, that's awesome. He's also at HCC ready to prepare to go and do something sports related at USF or UCF to continue that story from coming from that place of being made to feel and told that he was bad all the way to now him being able to accomplish these dreams in his life. I couldn't ask for anything more as far as the result. It comes with all the bumps and all of the trauma and all of the, you know, the mess along the way. But one of the things that we all have the benefit of when we come from supportive families is we have the benefit of failing and having someone there to catch us. We have the benefit of trying new things and and having just the safety net. And what these kids who age out don't have is a safety net. Everything is kind of one wrong move away from devastation and being destitute. I would say, if anything, Grow Into You comes in in that spot to bridge gaps of I like to say all these things that are happening in their life are islands. You've got the case manager, you've got school, you've got, you know, a job, all of these things, but they really need someone to help bridge all of those things. And case managers just aren't in a position all the time where they can do that in a relational way. Oh, gosh, they're not. So then after bridging those gaps, we do have these ups and downs and we do have one step forward and 10 steps back. We're investing in failure because... When we give them the opportunity to try and fail, they have to then look at themselves and go, what else do I need to do personally to be able to overcome that the next time? I celebrate little wins. I celebrate what happens, you know, if we used to cuss out the case manager. Now we can have a professional conversation with the case manager. Like we have won when they have failed that GED test three times, but they do it the fourth time. That was worth all the investment into the three times that they didn't. It looks really different than I think sometimes people want it to look because there are all these deficits and they're just mounting like they're just accumulating. And then they because can, everything builds on each other. Right. And when they didn't get something here, when yeah. you come in here and try to add it, nobody's going back and trying to fill that usually. No. no. So I'm getting this mountain of deficits And society wants to see them just snap out of that. We're putting kids at 18. Thankfully, I would say that even in Hillsborough County, at least, like the housing situation has improved as far as the quality of housing that they're put in now. Um, When I first was 
starting to work with kids who were who were aging out those kids in those group homes that were going into an extended foster care home, which is I have two of those. They were in neighborhoods where there are shootings happening. I literally pulled up to a house to get one of my boys to go on do a coaching session. I'm sitting out in my car with no tinted windows. Another boy who I knew I've worked with him. He comes and scales the fence to the extended foster care home. Another car pulls up, takes something out of the back seat that looks like an automatic weapon under a jacket. Um, of course, I'm very naive, so I'm like questioning myself. Is that? Really <laughs> oh, he's got I a thought? broom over there. And so he he <laughs> lowers it over the fence into the extended foster care home. And then I get texts from my kid I'm there to pick up saying, leave, leave, leave. It's not safe. Fast forward. I call the police because I'm very worried about what I just saw. I find out there was a shooting happening on the road next to me simultaneously as I'm pulling up. The gun that was put into this extended foster care home is being harbored in that home from that shooting. And the police had me stand outside the house for two hours so that the whole neighborhood could see who I was. And then they said, don't come back again. And I said, I can't do that. My teens live here. That's the kind of environment, the kind of neighborhood that that these homes were in. But the group homes are like that too. The group homes that I've been to and that have been described to me were in very unsafe neighborhoods where shootings happened, lots of drugs, near parks where all kinds of things went down. I laugh sometimes when I drive around because the places that I am in, the places I just get out of my car and walk around and talk to people, I feel like my Christian mom friends would be <laughs> would be terrified <laughs> you know? and like just, it's just it, a normal Tuesday for right. you <laughs> like, like in the movie The Blind Side when she's like yes, over there I and everybody's thinking, staring oh, yeah. at yeah. her I was no, just thinking that me, for sure. <laughs> and I just say that I have a God bubble like I'm never scared I'm never like I'm not saying I'm not vigilant but I am never like intimidated by those circumstances because I feel very purposeful and why I'm there. And I, I keep my focus on, you know, the kids and what they need. So, and um, if we're putting our little kids there who are neglected, very vulnerable in these situations, then we've got to be willing to go there for them. Right. Right. You know, in contrast, the houses I have are on a nice, quiet, beautiful little (laughs) street in Brandon that, you know, it's suburbia. Oh yeah. Oak trees covered. My neighbor hates me because <laughs> we have aged out kids in our house. And when they we first opened the house, our family actually moved in about six months after the house opened because we felt called to be an anchor family full time. Um, but before it was 18 year old, you know, 18 to 23 living as college roommates. And there were some things that happened that were like a little rough. Um, not not impacting anybody else. Just, right. They weren't shooting up the neighbors. Yeah. No. There was guns just, were being harbored yeah, no. in the house. <laughs> it was girls having drama with their boyfriends. Yeah. And <laughs> which could which actually it is super normal. Totally right? happens in suburbia. So normal. And but because they were vulnerable, the neighbor was able to, you know, basically make it into this big thing about how we were ruining the neighborhood. So like when I go out of my house every day, I see a face of someone who despises what I do. You know, I have to live in that space of like people aren't going to get it. People are going to say, get over it at your age. People are going to be not trauma informed in the very system that's supposed to support them. Teachers are going to 
want you to not mumble under your breath and <laughs> I'm going to be like <laughs> clapping because today you didn't get suspended. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. So, You're there. And all you did was mumble under your breath. You didn't curse anybody out. You didn't stab anyone. You didn't stab anyone. No drugs in the bathroom. Like, this is a win. Well, the thing is, is that I'm changing a trajectory. And so that small movement of that, you know how not to cuss someone out anymore, down the road puts you in a very different position. It's tiny increments of movements. You guys know that trauma brains, they are very delayed. And so I am waiting for their 30s. Right. Yes. To see the fruit. Yes. What I'm doing now. Yes. Exactly. How many houses do you have? I currently have two. Okay. We have a boys home who has an anchor man and three boys who have aged out. And then we have a girls home, which is my family of five and then we are renovating the back part of the house where there will be a two-bedroom apartment that has its own entrance for the girls to live in so they have autonomy because they are um, of age and we want them to practice that independence but we're a knock away right right. for the boys we're like literally a two-minute walk down the street and then they can come see me and they will come they'll show up in the middle of you know it'll be 10 p.m at night and that's when they want to have a coaching conversation of course course. (laughs) it's really convenient to be right there yeah proximity do you guys have meals together or is is that like part of them starting to live life on their own is prepare their own meals. Well, that's interesting because we came became an anchor family. Um, that was kind of the idea, like eye in the sky view was that <laughs> these kids who I've supported from afar, not living under the same roof as them, once I'm there, they'll be able to just get that full family feeling. That is not what happened. Probably not that interested in having meals every night. (laughs) Unfortunately, the two girls that started with us in the home, wonderful, amazing girls. But they have come from families who neglected them so much, they're not interested. They have had their sights set on their independence for so long. It's a little bit of an adjustment for them. That's not to say I don't think there will be kids who end up in our home eventually that do want to take advantage of those kinds of things. They know they need to to learn to cook, but they're not really interested in it. So there's stuff like that that we are offering. What I like to say is you're always invited. You're never expected. So they know that if they called me up and said, I want to help you cook a meal tonight, I would say, come on. We'll text them and say, we're going to do this. Or you're invited to do that. But they don't necessarily come. <laughs> the things that we have in place is we have one night a month where we do a study called Thrive, which is coaching principles and helping them to learn just how to kind of have a different perspective on life. Um, We do that once a month just for an hour. And that's a requirement of living in the houses. We do have house meetings once a month where we'll talk about logistics of anything that they need to be working on in the house. Then we do one fun event uh, every month. So like tomorrow, we're all going to that Epperson Lagoon. Oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be there tomorrow, actually. We're going at 3 p.m. With my family. And then beyond that, like this year, we're doing personal development and community service stuff. And that's for my teens at large, because I have five that can live in our homes. But then I'm coaching. I have up to 30 kids right now on my, you know, I say in quotations, caseload, because they're really just my kids. And that's varying degrees. Some of them I'm talking to every single day. 
Some of them I'm, you know, just checking in with, we're doing as needed. Some of them live in other states and have been referred to me by people, you know, just to get some guidance and help them to advocate for themselves where they are. So it varies. What is your family unit look like and how did it come to be? The ones who live in our house are my husband and myself. And then we have three children, 15, uh, 12 and nine. Those are my biological. And then we have two girls who have aged out of foster care. One of them just moved out. She got her own apartment. She's pregnant. When we moved in, we had one that was 19 and one that was 18. What it looks like is in the morning, you know, when we're going to school, my daughter, who's 15, and then our aged out young lady who is 18 is a senior and they go to the same school. So, you know, I pack everybody a lunch, get everybody in the car and take them to school. So it's really nice because I'm doing my mom job and I'm doing my, you know, support of this teen. How do your kids feel about the organization? Do they like participate in stuff with? A couple of things I say, first of all, my children, I call them freakishly good. They just are, I would not be able to do this if they weren't who they are. They are very studious. They're very kind hearted. They believe in the higher purpose of what I'm doing and always have. So when my daughter, who's 15, who acts like a 15 year old now, but when she was <laughs> younger and I started this, you know, she had this little, this little jewelry business. She started called Jim Jewelers and she was selling jewelry so that she could donate money to grow into you. Oh, stop. My son who's sitting next to me, when he was probably, I don't know, so three years ago, he would have been about nine. And when we opened Oak House, which is our boys' home, um, they're all named after trees. Grow into you. Get it. Cute, <laughs> um, I like so it. <laughs> Oak House, when we opened Oak House, we were doing our renovations and you know, all of our, our whole church was over there doing a work day and somebody kept the kids at church, you know, to babysit them while all the parents were doing a, the work day at Oak House. And Killian, the, whoever was babysitting them at church had them all make cards for growing to you. When I got my son's card, it said, I would sacrifice anything to make these kids have a home. Make me tear up. <laughs> yeah. This isn't just mine, my vision or my work. It's theirs too, mm -hmm. you know? And when we go to that lagoon on Saturday, <laughs> we're all going. The boys that are starting that company to do sports training and mentoring, they're piloting that with Killian. It's a huge blessing for me to have children that understand it and, and get it and not just appreciate it, but are willing to be a part of it too. When kids come out of foster care, generally, what is their trajectory? Because I know we look at the stats and we see the stats on how many kids go to college or even tech school are like so minimal that you can't even consider that as some of the potential outcomes. Yeah. And that a lot of them end up in the criminal justice system and a lot of them end up in really bad situations. I feel like a large part of that is the lack of support. You know, you age out and you have nothing and you have no one. But I know that DCF does offer some services, right? Is it called independent living or something like that? And they have pest programs and extended foster care programs. Right. So what does it look like outside of what you guys are doing for most, I know there's lots of programs, but what happens to most teens when they turn 18 and they're in foster care? So like I said, most of them, well, 11 to 17 
uh, very often they're growing up in a group home. I don't have as much access to the 11 to 17 population now just because my aged out population has grown so much that that's really who I am primarily working with. And I know that group home laws have changed in the last couple of years. So it may look slightly different than it did when I was really immersed in those group homes a couple of years ago. When they are 11 to 17 and they're mostly growing up in a group home situation, occasionally in a traditional foster care home situation, uh, if they're not being adopted before they age out, then at 18 years old, they are transitioning into an extended foster care home if one is available and those homes are pretty limited and those would be homes like the ones I have whoever your landlord is which at the end of the day that's really what I function as on paper with the system is the landlord who is providing a room to the teen if they are doing qualifying activities which would be school or work so let's just you know take a moment to sink in how successful that's probably going to be. If they're doing school or work, then their rent will be paid directly to the landlord for that room and board. And then the teen is given $200 a month to live on. That's it. Okay, so as long as they're able to successfully attend school or work, yes, they have a place to live and $50 a week. Yes. And these programs have to be, they have to be set up into these before they age out. They do have to be identified as a kid who's going into that home. We're talking about 3% of kids who are, come from foster care, uh, successfully attend college. Yes, they can get their college paid for. But 97% of them aren't able to complete it. So 97, so we're talking about 3% are able to do this. 97% aren't. Holding a job is just as hard for most of them. These kids have trouble finding a place to live where people don't kick them out. How are they going to be able to have a job where they have relationships with their coworkers and their boss, where they're not being triggered and acting inappropriately and not showing up? These aren't kids who've been set up and put in a position where they can be successful in work or in school. Now you're saying we're only going to help support you if you can figure these pieces out on your own. Got it. It's it's performance based. It is a performance based system that we have set up for kids who have aged out. So if you can perform, you can get support from the system of care for an extended amount of time. They might be 18 chronologically, but most of them are probably closer to 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 emotionally. Emotionally. And so so if you think of a seven-year-old going into work or trying to go to college, it's unrealistic. Right. In my experience is why the teens don't really access these programs because it feels to them insurmountable or impossible to attain these things. When a child ages out of foster care, either there's nothing for them and they're just out or they go into some type of extended program with um, extended foster care where if they're able to hold a job and go to school, they can have some services. Mm -hmm. The main difference between the general services offered from DCF for kids who've aged out and what your foundation is doing is really the mentoring and the coaching piece added to the homes, right? Oh, yeah. We provide financial assistance, you know, and I'm very thankful and it's very much manna. It's like faith based. I don't know where the money's coming from. We have very few individual monthly donors, less than 50. And then we have these two homes that when the rooms are filled, 
then we have some income from those rents. That's pretty much all I know is coming in. Everything else is like random grants, you know, and we're not even big enough to really go after any major grants. How do you get the funding to pay for all of this? I mean, the only answer I have for you is God, because <laughs> I am telling you, I, I don't know where <laughs> to be very perfectly honest. When it's between a kid needs help or being administrative, I go where the kid needs me. The business of it is just sort of like, there's some money in the account that's going to pay the bills that we have for. And most of the things are, you know, the, the house expenses, mm -hmm. um, but then also being able to provide for these kids mm -hmm. and, and meet a lot of those needs that they have, whether it's pay $12 to get your student ID or it is we're going to help with a car repair, you know, and all the in-betweens. To a lot of people, it probably looks like I'm very enabling. I'm just providing for for things out of grace when it's not necessarily earned <laughs> but you're doing it because that's what the kids were lacking their entire life Correct. so you're trying to catch them up for lack of a better yeah. you know term to the need that was never met before so yeah. you're constantly in the space of giving to help them eventually yeah. in their 30s at some point <laughs> it pays off right to catch them up so they can make it to their 30s so are you guys familiar with aces yeah yes okay so are you also familiar with the pces too yes okay i'm really excited about is that those adverse childhood experiences being counteracted by the positive childhood experiences and i just met with two professors at USF who are doing some research on the positive childhood experiences and confirming that it doesn't have to be childhood. It just needs to be those types of those seven or whatever it is markers that when you have a support system, you have people outside of just your family who are in your corner. You have those traditions and things that you can participate in that you start to build the resiliency that you need to overcome the adverse things that have happened in your life. And so that is, I, I don't love data and research because I like feelings and stories, <laughs> but I am in a position now where instead of someone coming to me and saying, tell me the statistics of how successful your kids have been in work and school. I want to be able to say you're asking the wrong question. What we're doing. Tell is me about the PCEs. Yeah, yeah. We're providing these experiences where those end up is far down the road. I'm not focused on where they end up. I'm focused on what I'm investing into them now so that they can end up in a good place later. When you are doing it for a kid who's four, it makes sense to everybody. When you're doing it for an adult who's 19, it looks like you're babying them. Yeah. But that's the business I'm in is babying adults. So uh, for funding, you, you get small grants, small, small donations. Grants. Yeah, there's a, a couple of churches that have decided to support us. Then I'm not a faith based organization, you know, on paper. So some churches steer away from it because they only want to support faith based. Although for me, it's a ministry. <laughs> but right. mm -hmm. um, too many of my kids have been through traumatic experiences around religion. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to put that out there. There's an organization called 
uh, Milky Foundation, Casting for Kids. They do a big fishing tournament every year and they have donated to us a couple of years in a row. I could tell you lots of things I do with, you know, if I had some like legitimate funding and there is funding out there for people working with youth aging out. A lot of times that funding is not really accessible to tiny organizations like mine. Where do you see Grow Into You in 10 years? If it continues the way it is now, which is fine with me on a personal level, is that it will be me with two or three houses serving about 30 kids. If there was funding to speak of, I could scale this up so that we could serve more teens. In an ideal world, 10 years from now, I would love to have tiny home communities where we would have an anchor family that lives in a single family home. And then we would have teens living in individual tiny houses on the property. Maybe oh, like four that or five. is a cool idea. That is a very cool idea. When I see your rolling hills out here, we passed a house <laughs> on the way and I said, look, that could be our house and we could put tiny houses all around yeah. it. But I love that concept because then the teens get autonomy um, because even a roommate situation is not always ideal. I would really love to get into the space of training stakeholders across the system, because I think one of the biggest issues we have that contributes to us having these kids with mounting deficits is the lack of not just trauma informed, but how to communicate with teenagers. I don't say anything different than what other adults are saying to them. I just say it in a different way. And the way that I say it, not always, I'm not perfect, but I I'm a student of how to do that in a way that's not triggering to them and that keeps a lot of open space so that they can grow instead of feel stifled by what I say they can and cannot do. And this is what I tell people whenever I do get to train, you know, individuals that are going to invest in kids' lives who have come from trauma backgrounds. I say, if you listen to nothing else, I say, just acknowledge and validate. They need to know that you have heard what they are saying. If you don't do that, they're going to keep saying it. Erin, can you give me a word to describe foster care? I would say need. There's so much need. We talk a lot about self-care and secondary trauma from all the trauma that we're processing. And you work with 30 kids. (laughs) (laughs) What is your outlet? What is your self-care routine? Over the last three years, I pretty much was working another full-time job on top of doing this with the boys home in full, you know, swing. And and that was out of personal necessity. We had built a life around corporate jobs and teaching jobs and retirements and whatever. And, And then when my husband ended up being called to be a pastor and I ended up being called to run my own nonprofit, Uh, obviously that was a, there's a lack of profit there. (laughs) January, I was able to quit my second job and just go back to focusing on growing to you. I've been able to have what I call rhythms in my life, like rhythms of movement and rhythms of reading and rhythms of, uh, you know, I cook for my family, which I don't know if I've ever cooked for my family before. My husband did it for a long time and we both hate it. So if we can eat out, we'll eat out. But, you know, now I'm enjoying doing that, which is something I've never enjoyed doing before. 
I'm trying to be in tune with what are some new rhythms that I can create in my life. Kind of finding those small moments of yeah. things of enjoyment, like cooking for your yeah. family. I do. My husband and I both, when we got into the, you know, the work that we both do now, we do take a personal retreat every year, each of us. Yeah, we go and just get in a cheap Air- Airbnb somewhere mm-hmm. and just go away for the week so that we can That's amazing. And, and pray and walk and explore and just kind of have a a moment to ourselves. Um, So that's been a great practice that we have in our lives. I don't know what God has in store, but I'm kind of willing to do whatever it looks like. So seems like you have a lot of support too. Yes. Yeah. I have a wonderful church. Um, I have, like I said, freakishly good kids. My husband and I, I mean, we met each other at 15. Uh, I told my mom on the second day I met him that I was going to Married that boy from Alabama. And then I did seven years from that day. I am very blessed with the relationships that I have personally and very big extended family who's very supportive of what I do. So it's a good life and so thankful that my journey has led me to doing what I do now. What is one positive change that you would like to see in foster care? Just one. The one would be education and training on how to communicate with teens. Based on the trajectory, based on the stats of what happened to these teens that are in foster care, we would probably be saving a lot of money in our criminal justice oh, yeah. system mm-hmm. oh, yeah. if we nip that in the bud there. Mm-hmm. What do you think communities can do to prevent more kids from needing to come into foster care? This new uh, anchor family that we have joining us, you know, they want to work with our young moms And the reason they want to is because they don't want those young moms to end up back in the system as a parent. If we could really start to build relationships, kind of almost like what I'm doing with teens who have aged out with the families who are probably grown up trauma kids. It's not so much what can we do on the foster care side, but what can we do with the families to build resilience where they don't have to have those kids removed. And so I love this idea of doing that with our aged out girls because I'm starting to build this group of kids who are now old enough to become moms. They're not stable. They're, they're still, they're, they're still trauma kids. They're the 20 year old who's really 10. This is kind of a new thing that's happening with this anchor family being drawn to that is what can we do to impact those kids not having to become kids in the system because we are doing the work now with those moms who have already gone through that experience and kind of breaking that cycle. I'm kind of excited about that, where that goes. I'm excited about that too. <laughs> I am too. I think it, you know, it reminds me of what Judge Tepper talked about and kind of breaking that cycle. Do you have any additional goals to make positive change in your local community? I'm a person that has a lot of interests outside of just what I do professionally. I love the arts. I'm a clown. I'm a professional clown. Shut <laughs> yeah, Her name is Pippi. She has purple hair. Oh my gosh. She has very bad face painting. But she puts sparkles on it, so it's fine. And balloon animals. You know, community <laughs> service. I am a musician. I grew up singing. I have a lot of dreams still, even at my midlife, that I can continue to contribute like in an artistic way to the world. Maybe doing those sorts of things with little kids at some point. Yeah, I just think adding more beauty to the world in fun ways and artistic ways and that kind of thing is something that 
if I wasn't spending all my time doing this, I might do that. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. We're so excited for what you're doing with Aging Out Foster Youth and the growth of your organization. So thank we you. just really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was very fun. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.